and welcome to Need to Know, your weekly investment podcast brought to you by the experts at Coots. I'm Sarah Muir and I'm joined as always by Coots CIO, Alan Higgins. Uh, and this week for um, a, a special episode, um, I'm joined by James Hawkes, who is a senior multi-asset portfolio manager here at Coots. Now, for those of you that are new to Need to Know, each week on the podcast, we look at the three things you need to know for the week ahead. We're going to be covering today's, or I should say today's, Wednesday's Fed rate decision on a later podcast this week. But what we wanted to focus on for this podcast was the Bank of Japan. So, James, I'm, I want to come to you first. Um, what are the three things we need to know about the Bank of Japan? Thanks, Sarah. And hello, everyone. Um, yeah, so, I mean, Japan itself as an economy is, is one of the largest uh, contributes to the global economy. It's the G7 nation, so uh, important in that context. And quite interestingly, the Bank of Japan, um, they've been going through a few changes recently. We've had a new Bank of Japan governor come in um, who's likely to take a slightly different policy stance to his predecessor. Um, Japan's been marred by deflation for a number of decades. So the policy stance within Japan has been one to kind of provide constant support. And we've seen a few kind of frays around the edges with regards to the dynamic there, which can have quite large implications for global markets. So it's quite an interesting topic uh, to yeah. touch on. Okay, brilliant. And I think probably something that a lot of the listeners might not be so familiar with. Um, okay, well, let's kick off then the, the significance of the, of the Bank of Japan as a central bank. Yeah, so um, with regards to kind of what we've seen um, uh, from the Bank of Japan, the, the new governor coming in, um, Kazuo Ueda, to get that right, um, he's coming into an environment where um, Japan's been going through a period of uh, inflation rising, similar to the kind of Western economies, and having to perhaps tackle a lot of the inefficiencies that built up over the last few decades. Um, Japan has been doing quantitative easing now for a long period of time, and you, you've got an economy where it's got one of the worst debt to GDP ratios, close to kind of 250%, very indebted nation, um, a, a, an aging, one of the oldest uh, populations as well for a developed economy. So a lot of imbalances um, and these imbalances can have quite a large impact on, on financial markets as you try and adjust them over time. And their approach has been very measured. It's kind of within the culture, take things kind of slow and steady in, in yeah. a, and a measured approach. Um, and new pet personnel often can lead to quite meaningful changes. It might not happen mm. uh, immediately, but when that change does, does start, it can lead to quite big changes from a kind of financial market over time. And that's really what people have been focused on more recently. Yeah. Who is the new Bank of Japan governor? And what's his likely impact going to be on, on, on monetary policy? I mean, to be fair, the Bank of Japan has been desperately trying to get inflation kind of going in 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 the country for quite some time haven't they so they must be i suppose actually quite relieved that they're getting a little bit of inflation now but is there is there a sense that it might get out of control is that perhaps a concern well i, I don't think at this stage as you mentioned they've been trying to get it desperately back uh, demographics have really played a, a, a role in how kind of keeping inflation down um their stance has been trying to drive inflation through very easy monetary policy as i mentioned They've been doing QE, mm. so buying bonds. Um, they even have been buying equities as well in quite a bit of the Japanese equity markets. Um, and then in 2016, they 
um, went a step further and effectively capped the uh, bond curve, which is it's called yield curve control, to artificially yeah. lower kind of future borrowing rates um, and just to stimulate economic activity, hopefully keep lending cheap and then uh, yeah. people go out and spend and drive inflation. Can, can you just, just for, for those that don't know that listening, that don't understand how yield curve control works or perhaps haven't heard that expression before, can you just in very simple terms explain what we mean by yield curve control? Yeah, so at the moment, if the 10-year bond yield moves above 50 basis points, the Bank of Japan will come in and buy lots of 10-year bonds to keep yeah. it at that 50 basis points. It's basically capping the cost of borrowing over that kind of 10-year period. So it's a very simple mechanism. It is effectively a form of quantitative easing where you are uh, buying assets to kind of artificially lower that, that cost of borrowing. Okay. Well, then, well, let's come then to the new governor, because this, when we knew that there was going to be a new governor of the Bank of Japan, obviously the big question was, will they maintain the existing policy? So give us a little bit of an insight of, it's Ueda, isn't it? I hope I've got that name right. Who he is and what expectations are for him? Yeah, it's, inter- it's interesting because when uh, it was announced he was going to take over, everyone was asking, who, who, who the hell is this person? <laughs> We've never heard of him. And kind of people were scratching around, looking at historic journals from kind of 2000 when he was involved. I mean, he is, um, his trade is, he's an academic, um, teaches at the University of Tokyo, has done for, for years. So um, is like to approach things with a much more kind of academic um, philosophy. What does that mean? He'll try and use a uh, an academic purist approach, I suspect, mm. where trying to drive more balance, thinking about kind of the long-term imbalances that have been created. I mean, it's pretty well known what QE can do and they've done a, a lot of it. So I think that more open-minded approach is likely to um, lead to some slight changes. And mm. as I mentioned, people were looking back to kind of 2000, what was his stance when he was involved then? And he, he tended to be on the side of favouring a higher interest rate, this kind of term of hawkishness versus yeah. a, a very low interest rate because of the imbalances that it can cause over long periods of time so when he kind of was uh, um, appointed there was a lot of kind of soul searching by uh, market participants about how he could change the dynamic within Japan which has been very much um, so Kuroda who was the previous Bank of Japan governor mm. he was very much right fix the, the interest rate curve and leave it there and let it kind of drive inflation over time and they, he stuck with that for a long period of time. And um, there's questions now, could this start to change? So it's mm. quite interesting. We, so we had the, the Bank of Japan meeting, his first one last week. Right. Um, there were some market participants expecting a slight change uh, in the policy. Um, it was probably a bit optimistic to think he would do it in his first meeting. But uh, it was quite interesting, kind of some of the language that he used throughout the meeting I kind of picked up on a few bits there so they removed the phrase about policy rates staying the same or going lower and that's been there since 2019 so right these are very subtle changes and if you kind of get into the nuance of central bank language <laughs> we, we talk about Alan and I talk about that all the time especially when yeah, Mr Powell is confirmed <laughs> yeah whether he's one adjective or not it's, it all depends yeah, yeah. on what, what they're is, saying it, so they moved I was going to say, sorry to interrupt. Is it is it fair to say then that he's he's obviously going to take a fairly nuanced, subtle approach? He's not going to come in and 
you know, like a bull in a china shop and start radically sort of changing Bank of Japan policy, is he? I think um, it's unlikely to be kind of straight away, but I mean, certainly with yield curve control, there's a case to be made that you have to kind of talk and support it to the very point you don't, because as soon as you start telegraphing, or maybe we're going to abandon yield curve control, then the market sniffs that out pretty quickly and we'll start trying to bet the other way, which makes your job of maintaining it all that much harder. So I think this first meeting was always about setting the scene for how he's like to take things going forward. And as I mentioned, it's a measured approach. Um, but I suspect, based on what he said, that we'll like to see a, a change in policy. Uh, our expectation is kind of through this year, um, we could start to see a, a bit more occur. But there was a few things he said, as I mentioned, changing that language around kind of keeping rates going lower or staying the same, change there. Yeah. Um, so he spoke about a review of policy measures which have been taken since 1980, 1998, mm. where they've been fighting deflation, doing a lot of easing. This is, again, with his academic hat on going, can, what lessons can we learn from this? Mm. Again, setting the scene perhaps for a slight change, um, looking forward. I think that's the important thing, kind of leaving the door open to change. And also they, that he, he mentioned they can change policy before that review finishes yeah. in 18 months and it's going to be a lot of yeah. I mean you hear this path dependency a lot from central banks and I think it will very much depend on how the economy and inflation evolves from here yeah and essentially what what if assuming he's not going to completely abandon yield curve control but what he'll do is he'll allow the the yield on that 10-year trade that 10-year Japanese government bond to just move between the, he'll move the goalpost slightly I guess won't he he'll just widen that 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 range within which the ten-year um, Japanese government bond can can move, I guess, is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, we saw it. We've seen it once already. So the curator did it up from twenty-five basis points to fifty, so widened that band. I suspect they may go from fifty to seventy-five, rather mm. than kind of abandoning it completely, because that can create a, a big volatility episode, and and that's not good for anyone. So. I think the approach will be a measured and kind of gradual reduction, but I think the direction of travel is like to be kind of upwards. Okay, which brings us to your final point, which is this is all very fascinating and for the you know, watchers of, of the Japanese economy. But what does this mean for the wider economy? This is not just a thing that impacts Japan, is it? It doesn't. And that's why I think it's quite interesting. So I think this is more about obviously the, the economy in Japan is quite big. The, the amount of assets they they hold are quite large. And having been in an environment where you've had very low inflation, very low levels of interest rates and long-term borrowing costs, you've seen a lot of assets flow out of Japan into foreign assets to effectively do this kind of income pickup trade where you borrow at 50 basis points, you invest in something else, which is giving you, giving you more. And it's been a brilliant trade for the Japanese over a long period of time. Mm. But if you see that borrowing rate go up, then the trade becomes a lot less profitable and you're likely to see this big kind of repatriation of capital back into Japan. And it's, it's, it might not all happen at once, but again, it's the direction of travel. Um, if, I'll put a few numbers behind this. So if you looked at, and this was from a recent Bank of Japan study, um, there's about $10 trillion worth of foreign assets held by 
Japanese institutions. Right. Um, about a trillion of that is in foreign currency reserves held at the Bank mm. of Japan. So uh, a decent chunk outside of that. There's quite a lot of liabilities as well. I think about six and a half trillion. So a, a huge amount of assets and liabilities offshore. Japanese are the biggest holder, kind of single holder of US government bonds. Yeah. And we've seen what's happened with um, US government bonds recently. They've obviously lost quite a bit of money with yields going up. Um, they're also large holders of other international government bond markets. They hold 10% of the Australian market, I think similar amounts of the Dutch, uh, 7% of Brazil. So wow. tr- there's a lot of assets held elsewhere. And this yeah. change in direction is likely to be a powerful driver of of, of money flow over the coming years. So that's where so, we see kind of some interesting dynamics unfolding. Okay. So I guess what could happen is I guess the fear, well, fear or not fear, but the expectation is that if Japanese 10-year government bonds are, the yield is allowed to go up, then that money is going to come out of treasuries and go back into Japanese government bonds, I guess. Is that is that the expectation? Yeah, I mean, that's the expectation. But it's interesting kind of if you read kind of local kind of Japanese institutions, they're already starting that trend because the, the dynamic we've seen with an artificially depressed borrowing rate in Japan and yields moving up everywhere is already having an impact on currency. Mm. So if you're holding a lot of foreign assets and it's a yield-based play, typically you would want to hedge the, remove the currency risk because yeah. that's a very volatile component. And what you've seen is that the, the difference between Japanese and US borrowing rates is causing the, uh, the hedging costs for currency to, to increase. It's eating into the, the profitability already. So you've seen comments um, from some institutions. So Dai, Daiichi Life Holdings, that's one of Japan's largest institutional investors. They're already starting to shift money back in, um, into domestic bonds and they've cited the hedging costs, but also kind of looking ahead mm. at that risk. So it's already starting around the edges. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think it's it's, it's likely to be a trend we can expect as policy changes mm. um, and that can create some volatility um, uh, going forward. And another one to add to Alan and I's watch list of central banks and what they're up to. Alan, I'm going to hand over to you now because you had some questions for James about some ec- a Japanese equities. I think. Yes, thank you very much. Very interesting. Yeah, many years ago, I used to work for Daiwa Toshin, Toshin Daiwa Investments. So uh, enjoy it well. And I had the luxury of Japanese bond yields at more like five, six, even seven, would you believe? So I think um, James is right to be alert to these risks. But actually, you know, pivoting a bit, Japanese equities, they they interest me. Of course, being a global investor, we always will have some Japanese equities. But I guess the so James, who's senior and involved in the tactical team, would be very interested in his thoughts. What, what, two things that pieces of news. One, Warren Buffett, always follow Warren Buffett. He wants to increase his stakes in Japanese, uh, uh, certain Japanese equities, issued some bonds there, also taking advantage of the low bond yields. Secondly, a bit under the radar, the Tokyo Stock Exchange is now going to investigate and write reports on stocks which have a price to book, a way of valuing companies, a bit of an old fashioned way, but still a way that are too cheap. And Japanese companies, they're cheap, but they've long not really been like the US, like US companies. And one example, Citizen Watch. Have you ever owned a Citizen Watch, James or Sarah? That brand, no. Citizen Watch. I've, I've, I've no, actually got a Psycho. Psycho? C-E-I-K-O, Psycho? I think that's right, but I haven't ever had a Citizen. Anyway, 
They've announced they're a very cheap stock in the doldrums. They've announced they're going to buy 25% of their shares back. So given this theme, um, tell me what the team thinks. Tell me what you think about Japanese equities. Yeah, I think um, this the point about valuation is quite interesting. It's something we talk about a lot. Japanese equities have been cheap for quite a long period of time. And it's partly why Warren Buffett's kind of looking at it. The, the val- long-term valuations there look attractive. The, the, the point on the Tokyo Stock Exchange is an interesting one. I mean, if you follow kind of the, the evolution of um, what's occurred with the cheapness, they started this JPX 400 years ago, which was kind of trying to drive investors into companies that were more efficient with their capital, tying into this kind of um, using capital, making sure that you get more value out of the companies. And that was quite successful, bringing some foreign investors into Japan. But that was not forced. It was kind of, right, here's some of our more efficient companies trying to lure you in. Now they're taking more, as you mentioned, a more active approach. Um, they went out to the, I think there's about three, almost three and a half thousand companies within that, that kind of focus. Um, um, about 1800 though, they, the Tokyo Stock Exchange basically said, you need to pay more attention to your capital costs and stock prices. And as you mentioned, those with low price to bit ratios you need to focus on using your capital more efficiently. What you find in Japan, because inflation's been zero, actually you've had deflation, holding cash on your balance sheet's been actually quite rewarding for just your kind of um, your returns. So businesses have tons of cash on their balance sheet rather than opting to give it back to investors. And that's really put off, I think, a lot of foreign investors over a long period of time. So really they're trying to drive more action to make it more attractive. Um, and part of that, they're also assessing the effectiveness of, of boards as well. Japanese boards, um, it's quite interesting. There's a lot, often a lot of battles to try to get them to do more. And they're very kind of stoic in how they approach these decisions. Um, so they're really trying to yeah, make it more attractive for, for international investors. And interestingly, I think tying into the kind of Bank of Japan debate, if you look at the assets held by the Bank of Japan and um, the, the banks that kind of sit with under, under their remits. Japan owns a lot of uh, Japanese equities. I think they own about mm-hmm. 85% of the ETF markets. So it's quite interesting how... Yeah, that's the bear case, isn't it, James? The fact that the, you mentioned about government intervention in the bond market. There has been government intervention in the equity market. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's, that is the bear case. But anyway, I leave it with you and Sarah because... Uh, I'm, I'm clashing with a client meeting. So Sarah and James, could you kindly sum up for me? And then I look forward to joining, uh, I think um, it's your colleague, Sarah, isn't it, where we cover. No, it's going to be, it's, it's gonna be you, and, you, and, uh, you and me tomorrow after the, uh, we're going to be sort of glued to our TVs to see what Jerome Powell has to say for himself. And then we'll be talking about that on Thursday. Thank, well, thank you very much, James. So just to sort of sum up, you know, we, 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 for this extra episode this week, we wanted to do a focus on the Bank of Japan and why the Japanese equity market, you know, why the Bank of Japan, they've been exercising this yield curve control for a, a substantial number of years now where they're controlling the yield on the 10-year Japanese government bond. It looks like with this new, very academically sort of based um, new governor, Ueda, he's going to be possibly taking a fairly measured approach, but he is going to be starting to move away from that yield curve control. 
which all sounds very interesting, but what's that got to do with wider markets? Well, actually quite a lot because Japanese investors are some of the biggest holders of foreign assets, particularly US treasuries. So of course, obviously the implication is if we see yields go up on Japanese government bonds, there's going to be a repatriation of money back into Japan. And also Alan had some really some interesting thoughts and some great to get James's uh, thoughts on that, on what we're seeing in Japanese equities as well. Um, so interesting. And some hopefully you're a little bit better informed now about what's happening in Japan. A reminder that the views expressed in the podcast are not intended to constitute investment advice, are accurate at the time of recording and are subject to change. Thank you very much to James and Alan for joining me for our special podcast today. Don't forget to check out the podcast page on coots.com. And of course, you can now subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and Spotify, and you can listen to previous episodes, including last week's cryptocurrency special with James Butterfield from CoinShare. Um, We'll be back later on in the week with another need to know. Until then, bye for now.